This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oak Shape Podcast, episode 70. Me, Dan the Fitness Man. I want to thank you all for joining in. Today we're talking with uh, Ted Ramirez Jr., Caribou Game Bags. Now, we're not talking just about game bags. We're actually mainly talking about do-it-yourself Alaska. That's like the Yukon moose, you know, the really big ones up there in remote Alaska, float trip style, do-it-yourself, no guy, drop-off style, float 100 miles and try to kill a big bull moose on public land. Dream hunt. And Ted's done it a couple of times. His dad's done it several times, bagged a couple of booners doing it. And so we go into like one of his hunts and just kind of learn how they did the process and then maybe inspire some of y'all to to go take this adventure head on. Talk about a couple promotions going on right now. So number one, get on Instagram at Elk Shape. Uh, we're going to go ahead and draw a scholarship winner for the next Elk Shape camp. Somebody's going for free. And if you tag your buddy who sucks at elk hunting, I'm joking, who is really good at getting tag soup and needs a little fine-tuning of their elk hunting game, tag your buddy. And if we pick your buddy that you tagged, you win a pair of Kinetrek boots, Bridger Ridges High, and a set of Wapiti or Wapiti game bag, synthetic for this season. So not only do you win, but your buddy wins. The retail value on the camp six oh five. They got to cover their travel, hotel, whatever, and just get to Spokane June twenty first to the twenty third. And if you are on the fence about coming to camp, do it, darn it! I have about half the spots filled. I want to fill them all up and change the world. Dirk Durham. Ryan Lampers, Kenton Claremont, Josh Jones, Spokane Valley Archery, with me, Dan the Fitness Man. And if you are new to the Elk Shape Podcast, this podcast is about personal development. We're trying to leverage elk hunting to find the best version of yourself through a disciplined, delayed gratification lifestyle. We are all about hard work, and we're all about being accountable to our actions. We have some great partners. Check out the show notes. I got some discount codes with some awesome partners from Coolers, 
to supplements, University of Elk Hunting, and now Caribou Game Bags for you listeners. If you want to support the podcast, give us a five-star review or share it with your buddies. Just word of mouth alone is huge. This podcast is gaining traction because there is no fluff. It's all about the do-it-yourself blue-collar brethren that go out there, buy their tags at Walmart, and cut their teeth on public land. I appreciate all your support. Without further ado, Ted Ramirez Jr., we're talking Alaska do-it-yourself moose hunting. Elk Shake Podcast, Episode 70. With me, Dan, the fitness man. Today, I'm talking with a young buck stud, workout guru, entrepreneur and great hunter ted ramirez jr what's going on brother hey guys how you doing now just right, in man? the shop today yeah yeah things are great busy man busy always for real i believe it yeah. now you are a guy that kind of landed a job working for something that your dad kind of started but it's really like a family ran business and like i can attest to it because i've seen your entire family running the business (laughs) at a trade show Um, yeah we'll get into that but man let's talk about you man like so when i first met you a couple years ago you were pretty into like competing uh different fitness angle like aesthetics really um yeah, bodybuilding yeah and then i met i talked and caught up with you oh, a couple months ago and and you kind of, that ship had sailed but you'd done it but your passion was still lit for fitness so we're gonna Completely. get into your background on fitness and all that stuff but go ahead and tell the listeners just a little bit about you and and kind of how you grew up yeah um so my dad always hunting um i've always gone hunting since i was about four years old and played competitive baseball um, since I was four as well. So that was always my childhood, hunting and baseball. By the year eight, I was traveling the world playing baseball and hunting all the time with my dad, and then got into high school, um, worked out all the time. So that's really where my passion for working out came from, was just playing the sport, playing competitive year-round stuff. Got into college, Freshman 15 is uh, definitely a real thing. I, I realized that. Started to gain some weight, realized that, you know, this small town college life wasn't really, um, really for me. It was tough staying in shape there when all your college buddies are drinking, partying, and just playing baseball. And I, I decided to actually take up some CrossFit there after my freshman year, coming back home during the summer. During that time, I mean, I was doing CrossFit every single day, and I was super strict with my diet, chicken, brown rice, sweet potatoes, um, waking up super early, doing two-a-days, working out nonstop, uh, dropped the pounds, went back my sophomore year, college, and realized that the love for the game just wasn't there anymore. So, ah. um, yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough um, being able to just give that up, and I realized that I loved working out more so than playing the whole baseball part. And um, it was tough, though, giving up that after I played it forever. My parents and family were devastated, but I realized that, you know, you got to do things that make you happy. And what made me happy was hunting and working out. And I don't know, I just, I wasn't growing um, anymore. So, Good for you. Anyways, man. yeah, I uh, I got serious with it. I started working out. I got a trainer. Um, ended up picking up a nutritionist, and I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like, I want to compete. Yeah. I wanna I want to get after it. Um, kind of 
throw me to the wolves kind of thing because <laughs> I've, I've never done it before. Um, as a baseball player, we were always training legs, never really upper body or aesthetics, really. It was, I think, eight months into my training, got a nutritionist. I was like, you know what? I want to go in this quickest competition and get me up on stage. Um, I ended up taking third place. So, I mean, I was, I was extremely happy about that. And, you know, ever since then, I've always had this passion for, uh, for working out. Yeah. Um, I've competed twice, um, here in Denver and in Houston as well. Um, both times I did take third place. So it wasn't what I was hoping for, but I, I loved every minute of it. And the thing about working out and competing or, just anything like that. It's a process, man. And during that whole time, it was always, you have to trust the process, trust the process. And there was days where you're like, man, uh, I just want to quit. And it's tough. The nutrition stuff and being able to keep a level head and, um, definitely getting up to shows, watching everything you ate and making sure you're, um, I, I follow my macros. That's what I would do. So your proteins, your fats, your carbs, um, I'd follow that to a T and that I found that that worked best for me, but it, it was tough. And then peak week building up to your competition is peak week. So you have that seven days where you're super strict. That's where I was drinking two gallons of water. So then a couple days before my show, I would cut back my water and it would really dry me out. But it was stuff like that, that really made me, um, I think the person that I am today, that with baseball become really level-headed and just strong-minded honestly and that's where i think being able to go to alaska and things like that that's where it really helped me Um, definitely like we have to talk about the level of discipline it takes because you have to like were you doing actual bodybuilding or were you doing more of the like what what's with the specific event you guys were doing you were training for so this organization is WBFF, so it was actually World Beauty Fitness and Fashion. And through this organization, there would be um, fitness model side of things, and then it was muscle. Mm-hmm. So basically, the fitness was kind of physique, and then the muscle was the more bodybuilding. Um, and so I was on the fitness side of things. Um, we would wear we didn't wear like a speedo or anything. We wore um, um, freaking board shorts. Um, we did have to show some legs though. Yeah. So we, you had to have the whole package. It wasn't just the upper body. Um, and you would go out there on stage twice. You would hit them. You wouldn't do a really a pose style. You would have to actually just walk out there and show your physique, but you're not posing. Got um, it. you had to go out there, smile and everything, smile for the cameras. They wanted to see if you're photogenic or not. Um, after that, you would go off stage, you'd go back on in a suit. So you'd wear a legit suit, form-fitted, go out there, you'd do a little runway, smile for the camera again, turn around and get all lined up and everything, and then they would announce awards. But it was exciting. It was it was really cool being able to get on stage and just um, just show off, basically, how hard you worked. I mean, it takes months and months and being able to be on stage with these people that have the same passion as you and know that they went through the same hardship as you and you just become kind of friends. It's a whole nother level of kind of bonding. Um, well, per before se. people listening get bored to tears because we're talking about yeah. something that a lot of people aren't into, let me back it up and like draw a couple of parallels. You are training for 
at least 12 weeks, and that's because you're no schmuck. A lot of you listening would have to train for like 14 months to look the way this guy (laughs) did, or you may never. And the reason I say that is because anyone can follow a pretty clean diet for a couple of days, maybe a couple weeks, a month. But very few people can do something that regimented, that strict, weighing and measuring your food that you prepare weekly, super annoying, not convenient, very high road. But the level of discipline to do that and then compound that with as you're slowly depleting yourself, which is what's going on, you still got to train like an animal to give your body the instructions to sustain, if not continue to build lean body mass. Super difficult. There's going to be days where you're in a funk, you don't feel good, and all you want to eat is a damn cheeseburger. And that's not on the menu. (laughs) So it's a lot of discipline. Then you have to go out on stage, put yourself out there, and be subjected to some sort of judging criteria that you have zero control over. I mean, if you want to look at it from... My angle, super intimidating, very daunting. Very few people will be successful doing it. But the parallels there to real life Ted Jr. is like it's massive. I think you are in a position to make yourself more disciplined when it comes to saying yes to the hard decisions. And then that's going to help you in everything you do, business, family, and hunting. So Definitely. You, you built yourself a pretty good platform to be able to do anything you want and the discipline. Can we go back and talk about macros for a second so people like can understand? You said protein, carb, fat. Those yeah. are your main macros. Your nutritionist, which is awesome that you hired one, gave you a set of blueprints. What did your macros look like in the early weeks? What did they look in the final weeks preparing for this? So, I mean, the whole time it was a high high protein diet. We did up my fats when it was getting closer to the competition and lowered my carbs. But I mean, my calorie intake was when I was about maintaining, it was about 3,300 calories and by the time tra- uh, the show would come about, I would go down to about 2,200 calories a day. And that would be, I mean, my day would look like egg whites, um like about four egg whites, two whole eggs, and a half cup of oatmeal. Then I would have two rice cakes with a little bit of peanut butter on it for snack. Lunch, I would have my chicken, brown rice, sweet potatoes, and asparagus. And then I would have another um, two rice cakes, peanut butter. And then after that, I would have my dinner around 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and that's where it would be higher fats, low-carb kind of meal. Um, I'd have my chicken, my asparagus, and a little bit of sweet potato or brown rice. And then for my fats, I would throw in some almonds in there. But you have to be careful with nuts because they are super high in calories and fat as well. Yes. Um, But the fat's nice because you wanted that late at night because your body can burn that off and um, eat its fat as well. So you're not eating muscle while you're depleting your body. Yeah, that's crazy. And then when you come down to water, you have to cut water so your skin is ultra tight yeah, and you look shredded. Be, yeah, paper thin, um, dries you out. You want to show your vascularity. Um, so what my nutri- what most people actually do is they cut out water completely. They'll keep 
they'll drink uh, about a gallon of water during that week. And then about a day before that show, they just deplete themselves of water. And the thing is you have water in your muscle and everything else. So it really fills you out. But when you deplete yourself like that, it's so unhealthy for your body. So I love my nutritionist. Um, she had me on two gallons of water. So then my body got used to drinking two gallons of water a day. Good and God. let me tell you, that was not easy. Um, <laughs> always had to make sure there was a bathroom around. After that, like the day before, I would go to a quarter of a gallon of water. And my body was freaking dried out. I was lean. But I was also still getting water in my system and being able to fill out my muscle still. And I loved that. Um, I think that was definitely the way to go. There were some people that were passing out on stage and stuff and backstage because they were depleting their body so much and not being able to get in water. And I mean, just dangerous stuff. And you just have to be careful when competing too, because you do, I mean, you get close, you're pushing it to the limit. You're, you're being rough on your body for sure. And I think with that, it really helped me, um, be able to be disciplined, like you were saying, in life and um, even going hunting. I mean, going to Alaska, self-guided hunting, which we can get in here in a little bit. But when you're self-guided hunting Alaska, I mean, you have to watch, I mean, everything that you carry, you, I mean, everything you take, you carry with you. And every ounce counts when you're backpacking in the Rocky Mountains or even going to Alaska. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's not easy. I think discipline is like the key to life. And we talk about it so much on this podcast because, you know, discipline boils down to just doing the things you don't necessarily want to do, but you, it's just, you, you must do. It's not should, it's a must. And I've been able to figure out just a series of decisions that I need to make. And I just do them after several years of just saying yes to the high road. It comes a lot easier. But I will say there's a lot of parallels when it comes to discipline and mental toughness, mental preparedness for hunting. Because the rigors of hunting, uh, the chips can be down. And especially if you're a public land elk hunter like myself, man, you're going to run into other hunters. Man, you're going to have a hard time finding elk. And man, in my neck of the woods, you're going to run into wolves and you're going to find animals that you know, just don't want to play ball and you got to keep your head up. So going to Alaska, let's get into it a little bit. Okay. Um, I know your dad, we got to talk about your dad and your guys's company. We should probably set the stage. What, what is your guys's company? What are you guys selling? What do you guys do? What do you offer? Yeah. So we, uh, we own two, um, separate companies. One is of course the caribou gear, um, ultralight synthetic game bag, which they are reusable. They are sold at Sportsman's, Cabela's, Bass Pro, Shields, all over the country and even the world as well. We also own Hunting Gear Outfitters, and that one sells an array of different um, different products. So Caribou Gear is the manufacturer of the game bags, but Hunting Gear Outfitters essentially sells it and other products as well. Um, we'll get into that later as well with more detail. But yeah, my dad at um, a young age always liked hunting and he came up with the idea of caribou gear and meat care. There was always game bags out there, but it was nothing. It was like cheesecloth and everything else, which wasn't really, which isn't really typically um, a game bag per se. When you're putting meat in it, the pores start to stretch out, dirt, debris, and bacteria are able to um, build up on it or gain access to the meat itself. So 
Um, about 2008, he came up with the idea. Um, we've been out now for over 10 years. And yeah, it was it was a process for sure starting to get out there. And so, yeah, I mean, the owner of Caribou Gear and Hunting Gear Outfitters, and he's always gone hunting. It was always elk hunting here in Colorado, um, deer as well. We, we still hunt public land every single year. It's like you were saying, it's tough. It's, it's not easy. Like when you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get up there early and I'm going to wake up at 4 a.m. and get to the top of that peak. Well, joke's on you. There's already four other hunters there too. They have the same idea. Um, it's tough trying to find a location to where there aren't any hunters here in the Rocky Mountains and the whole thing. But my dad taught me at a young age that, I mean, you got to get after it. And he taught me hunting and I, I love it. It's a passion. And now being able to work basically in the hunting industry and have a company there, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of a dream come true. Oh, no doubt. And you know, I always tell people buy your tags at Walmart. That's kind of like, I told you about that shirt I made. Uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a shirt for basically celebrating, dude, you're blue collar, you go hunt public land and you buy your totally. tags over the counter. Like, your money is not making you. In fact, you know, this is what you can afford. I kind of celebrate that, but I got to say don't buy your game bags at Walmart like <laughs> I did. I used to buy like the cheesecloth and of course I couldn't kill it out to save my life, but once I started figuring it out, you start to realize the real trophy is the meat because you're eating it all year long. And once you experience like consistent success, dude, elk meat is like the ultimate prize for, for going out and hunting, feeding, literally feeding my family year round on elk meat. It's pretty special. So I was going to say, don't buy your game bags there, but where, so you already mentioned where to buy the game bags. I think we should cover this while we're on the topic. Like you guys have a couple different lines. The Wapiti is what I call it. That's my go-to, but, um, you're talking to a guy who believes in the synthetic game bags. They're reusable. You can wash them, and the meat is the highest value commodity in the world. It's the most perfect, precious protein out there. It needs to be put in the right bag. So what do you guys offer on your lines for those that don't know? Yeah, so um, we have a, the Magnum Pack series here, so small, medium, and large. Small is for deer. It's going to come with seven game bags in there. You'll get the four quarters a cape bag, a miscellaneous meat parts, a little camp meat bag, including gloves, meat care tips, um, basically the whole thing. Um, If you want to take your trophy animal home, it does come with the cape bag, like I said. And then we have the medium, which is for elk, and then the large. And those are basically all the same versions. The moose pack does have an extra quarter bag in there. The reason for that is by hunting Alaska, in some parts of Alaska, you do have to take meat on bone. So we do offer a rib bag in that system. And our moose magnum pack um, has eight game bags. So the four quarters, the cape, um, a rib bag, the camp meat bag, um, the gloves, field care tips, and all that stuff. So it covers everything. So that's our magnum pack series. So if you're a guy that, you know, horse, ATV, kind of thing that's definitely the way to go or if you just want extra bags um, we do find that people like that one because it's more bang for your buck that you can keep the whole pack at camp and just take a few bags out of it and travel with that one in in your backpack we also do um, offer the high country series 
We have the Muley, which is the smaller version of the small pack, of course, uh, the Wapiti, the Carnivore 3, and the Caribou. And these ones are awesome. The Wapiti is definitely a top seller. comes yeah. with five game bags in there. It's just kind of the bare bones uh, necessities. You have your four quarter bags and then your one uh, miscellaneous meat parts bag for your backstrap, tenderloins, and things like that. Mm. The Carnivore 3 is, um, is really nice, though, for a backpacker that likes to debone. That one right there is 14 ounces in total weight. There's five game bags in there. You'll get the four foot by four foot plastic filled ground tarp and then five waterproof, tearproof ID tags. And these ID tags are nice. Um, say you're with a hunting group, you're able to write down your information on what game bags are yours, what meat is in each game bag. And we actually found out um, a lot of people come to us and tell us that when the divisional wildlife stops them, um, they're able to identify um, what bag actually proves um, uh, the sex of the animal so right. they don't have to be digging through their meat or anything. They can just pull it out and um, check the ID tag and be able to go from there. So it just makes things a lot simpler in camp and for the divisional wildlife there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, Wa- the Wapiti and the Muley. The Muley, of course, is just a little bit smaller for deer. And then our caribou is kind of like the, the moose pack. That one right there is meant for um, Alaska as well. We do offer a rib bag in there. So you'll get the four quarters, a rib bag, and then one miscellaneous meat parts in that system. So on the Wapiti, which is the one kind of I'm zoned in on, you can put a full elk quarter in that bag, which is super handy. Every once in a while, the stars align, and I kill an elk (laughs) where I don't need a debone. I would say over the last 15 years, the most – of my elk have been deboned out just because they're just terrible places. But I would say at least 10% of those kills have been in a place where I can get. And now I say it, I prefer to keep the meat on the bone because I like to age my meat for at least a week in my cooler. Um, I, I have like a little do-it-yourself locker that we built because that's how serious we are about our meat care. And uh, we use a cool bot, which is a cool little computer that overrides like an, a wall-mounted air conditioning unit. We kind of have like a – I think it's a 10,000 BTU. It's pretty gnarly. but Man, that's yeah, awesome. <laughs> we, built a, we built this little shed, and it's like an hour and a half from my house. So if I go to Arizona and kill an elk, um, yeah. when I bring it back up, I'm going to stop at our cabin and put the meat there and get it stored for at least – like I said, I like my meat to go for a full week. So keeping it on the bone is ideal. But yeah, in totally. certain instances, you got to go debone. So my plug is for the Wapiti or Wapiti, as I say, and get yeah. that. That's like, how much does that cost? Like, what's that retail? That one right there is sixty nine ninety nine. Um, that one is definitely the way to go, though. Um, if you strictly debone the Carnivore three, but the Wapiti can do both. I mean, the bag size you can't make your bags bigger, but you can always, you know, tie them up and shrink them down um, with the Wapiti. So it's yeah. definitely, and it's only two ounce difference too. Yeah, I so mean, the Wapiti is a hot seller for doing both of those for sure. That's cool. Well, we'll talk about maybe getting a discount code for listeners uh, for a short period of time on that game bag. Yeah, we could do that. I'm totally stoked on that bag, and and I think it'll last you a long time. It's not like you're buying this every year. This is just one of those pieces of equipment that you're going to invest in, and it's going to pay dividends when you have better tasting meat. And it's, uh, I mean, that's what it's after. So your dad was the first to go to Alaska, right? And then he brought you along after you kind of figured it out. 
Yeah, so he went, his first time was in 2001. And um, he actually, opening day, uh, 10 a.m., he shot a Boone and Crockett moose. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, yep, opening day. Um, he did his research, and, I mean, the stars aligned, as you would say, on that hunt. Um, everything worked out perfectly, and, yeah, opening day, shot a, shot a big boy. And the mass on this thing, I don't know, I I don't know if you saw it at our trade shows or not. Um, we Maybe. do take it to trade shows sometime, but the mass on that is actually tied with the world record for mass uh, right at the base there. I mean, it is, it's a thick moose for sure. Um, and then his second time, <laughs> you're going to think I'm lying opening day, 10 AM, he shot another Boone and Crockett moose. <laughs> and this one was not as big. It didn't make all time like the last one. But it was still a record book, and that one I'm looking at right now, it's in my office. But the palms on that thing are just incredible. I mean, they're huge. If you go to the website, um, you can check it out there as well. Holy smoke. So your dad's yeah. like two for two, and yep. it's super easy for him apparently. It's a very intimidating hunt, but like, let's go into some logistics so people listening, because I know there's guys out there like myself included kind of on the bucket list is an Alaska moose hunt. Now, I've killed one moose, a Shiris, in Idaho. Um, That's awesome, though. They're, they're babies. <laughs> they are cool. babies compared to what you guys are shooting, like yeah. true wild Alaskan moose, and you're in some of the most remote country. Let's talk about logistics. So your dad's, you said your dad did his homework. What kind of homework are we looking at? Um, are you guys putting in for these draws, like in December, like Alaska holds their draws in December, or are these over-the-counter? Like, How does it work? So – Actually, it depends. So if you're looking for a draw, you do have to put in like that already passed this past year. We unfortunately, we didn't get our draw, um, but we go over the counter. <laughs> we literally went to a drove to Alaska and got it um, over the counter at Sportsman's Warehouse. It's kind of like your Walmart deal. We do get our license from our hunting license from Walmart here in Colorado. But over there, yeah, you just go to Sportsman's Warehouse, say I want a moose tag. And they're like, OK. Um, the thing you have to worry about is bush plane, if you have a raft, um, transportation. So um, let's get into it here. When my dad went, they, I mean, you would lay everything out on a table and you want to make sure that you have all your gear because you soon realize really quickly when you get out, get out into the Alaskan bush that you forgot something. And if you did, you're screwed. If you forgot to pack for an extra day of maybe mills and your bush plane didn't arrive on time or the weather didn't um, didn't cooperate with you, then you're going to be out, <laughs> out a day of food. So it's, it's tough, but you have to lay everything out. Um, we ship it out there. You ship it out there months in advance. Um, you would contact um, the person that's picking you up from the airport or your bush pilot. Typically, your bush pilot will take it back to um, their warehouse or storage area. They'll pick you up from wherever you get dropped off in Alaska. And then right there, your gear is in a box. You load everything up in dry bags and then you load up the bush plane and they take you out to your desired river. Um, you want to check what river is right for you, different locations. Um, maybe Alaska actually has, um, where, 
moose were killed the previous year so you can go check that out and that's how you can do your research and mm. populations you can literally call divisional wildlife out there and they'll give you moose populations in certain areas and then you can pick your rivers from there that's what we do so you guys are floating um, oh yeah it's a float hunt every single time it's all self-guided my first hunt was about three years ago now and we actually drove up to Alaska. So this one, we didn't have to ship anything. We had a truck and trailer, and we just we were gone for a whole month, and we, we just went. It was pretty crazy. So with that one, we still were getting our gear ready months in advance. We didn't have to ship anything. We even loaded up a freezer because we wanted to take back as much moose meat as possible because it is definitely a favorite it is desired meat it's mm-hmm. you said elk meats amazing but i mean i don't know if you had alaskan yukon moose but it is the most tender meat you could have it is great so we took off about 8 a.m colorado and we drove up made it up into calgary about 4 a.m the next day slept in the truck hit the alaskan highway uh, slept on the road there. We wanted to, we, our mission was to get there as fast as possible. So we were booking it for sure, sleeping in the truck and driving all night long and got to, um, let's see, Toke, Toke, Alaska. It took us four days and Toke is right on the Canadian border on Alaska. Mm-hmm. It's that first town you come into. And we got to Toke and Right from there, we dropped into Anchorage. We flew out from there. And that first hunt, it was the southern part of Alaska, um, a river tributary based out of Iliamna. And that was, and Iliamna is just a little bit of southwest of Anchorage there. Um, and that was a 14-day float hunt. Unfortunately, no one um, got anything that trip. It was, it was a tough float. Uh, river was really fast, a lot of deadfall. Um, I actually ended up having to jump out of the raft at one point because we were getting sucked into some deadfall there. And if that happens, you can run the risk of uh, flipping your raft, popping it, um, gear going everywhere. And, I mean, that's when you're in big trouble. I mean, you're talking, you're on satellite phone. That's it. And if you get in trouble, you're either calling the National Guard or Coast Guard, depending if you're on, if you're in the water or on land. Where do you keep that phone? Things get escalated. So we have a little, it's just in a dry bag. I mean, the satellite phone goes in a little bag, little dry bag for it. And then we have a case and then it just goes in one of our dry bags. And that's definitely a valued bag for sure. You do not want to lose that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and on this floating day, on this 14 day float hunt, we're talking, we're eating mountain house meals, oatmeal in the morning. And then protein bars and beef jerky for snacks. You're, it's it's not an easy hunt, and I I can thank um, the whole workout and kind of following a diet to that, being able to stay completely disciplined. Because if you're not a level uh, level headed man or woman, it's going to be a tough hunt. It's it's not easy, and when you're out there, you really realize soon that you are the only ones out there. It is remote. Once that bush plane drops you on that river and starts flying away, it it gets real. No doubt. <laughs> and it's all of a sudden you realize, man, I'm I'm part of the food chain and these massive animals are here, these bears and wolves and 
you be you're you're aware of your surroundings real quick. So are you and, guys having to pull the raft out of the water every, every time you come across a legitimate downfall? Uh, not not necessarily completely out of the water. Um, you about pull it halfway out um, and then tie it tie it off to a tree there. And we unload all of our gear, of course. You have to be careful with food. You never you always hang it up every single day. And then like we set up a campfire about 100 yards away from camp just so if there's any droppings or scent of food, they're not coming up to our tent area. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, bears. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're hanging that food up in dry bags every single day, unloading the raft, loading it back up, and we just keep moving. So when we get dropped off, it's all right, see you guys in 14 days. Here are the coordinates of your pickup. See you then. If you guys have any problems, call us. If you're not going to make it, call us, and we'll come the next day. But yeah, after that, it's it's all on us to be able to travel, um, pick locations where we want to hunt, and that's where studying comes into play as well. Because once you figure out what river you are going to float, you want to go to like go to you know check out the map of the river. Okay, there's a pond or a slough back in this area. So when we get there, I want to you know, check out this or this is where we can camp and kind of map out distances. So all of a sudden you're not trying to make up 50 miles in one day. Right. You have to kind of, you know, keep to keep to a schedule in that way. So you can still make your um, pickup, but also get to these hunting spots that you want to go to. So, I mean, you have to definitely do your research on the river beforehand. But yeah, I mean, the food, every ounce counts when you go out there. You have to fly with it in a bush plane. So you, I mean, it's, it's strict. Our day is oatmeal in the morning. I remember I had two power or protein bars during the day, a pinch of beef jerky and some granola, and then one mountain house um, for dinner. And that's it. I mean, that's what you uh, got. Yep. That's what we got. And I mean, luckily all that trip, we were not fortunate enough to get a moose. So we did go through our food. Um, we did do well with fishing, though. We did have uh, some salmon, so fresh salmon from the river straight to the fire is amazing. I will say that that was always a treat. Is this like a September hunt? I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then yep. what? So what's running salmon wise in the river you guys were in that year? Uh, we just had the Alaskan king salmon. It was kind of the spurse of like runoff and stuff. So, I mean, you definitely had some rotted fish too. Yeah. So you had to be careful about that. I mean, some just were deformed and rotted out. And, and how many was... bears are you seeing? So funny thing is, uh, my last two hunts, I have not seen a bear. What? Tons of tracks. Um, you can see where they would rub up against the tree and scratch it and bite it and we have a lot of pictures, like I'm standing up and I'm trying to reach as high as I can on this tree. And this bear, you can see teeth marks in this tree and I'm trying to like reach it. And just to give you like, you, you know, just a perspective of how large these animals are. And it's, it's unbelievable. Um, unfortunately I, yeah, we have not ran into a bear, but my dad actually did. I forgot about a few years back. Um, he took a timber net out on a hunt and got him a moose. Nice. And during this hunt, he uh, they actually got charged by a bear, and they were in these um, tall weed areas, kind of marshy area, and all you heard, he said, was just kind of the you know, water splashing, and you can't tell where it's coming from. And by the time he was able to pick up his rifle, 
the bear stopped like 10 yards away from them. So it just bull rushed them, stopped, froze, turned around and ran the other way. But I mean, if it would have kept going, who knows what would have happened. No, (laughs) no. It it happens so quick. So then when you're hunting, you you guys got to float. I don't know. Give us like a breakdown. We float this far. We set up shop. We camp this many nights or we camp or we just do you hunt for a while, get back in your raft. Like what's your flow? What's a typical day look like? So typical day, it just kind of depends on what you see in the area. So that hunt, we – if you're not seeing anything, you're going to keep going. Um, so say you float for a few miles, 10 miles or so a day. And if you find a good area with tracks in it, you're like, you know what? We're going to stay here. We'll stay here two nights and we'll see how it goes. If you see fresh tracks, um, after that two nights, you don't see any like, Okay. We need to hit at least our next checkpoint and we're probably not going to be able to hunt there unless it's a really quality area or looks really quality. And we have to keep moving. But you have to, if you stay at a checkpoint for four days or so, you're going to have to make up that time and probably skip one of the checkpoints okay. or not be able to hunt that checkpoint. Um, it's, it, it's pretty tough, depending on the river, though, too. So on that first hunt, that 14-day hunt, it was a really fast river. So we were able to, if we wanted to fly through it, we totally could. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of nice having to be on that fast river, but it was also super dangerous because you're dealing with deadfall and an array of other things. And it was also hard to hunt or listen um, to the banks if maybe moose were in the in the shrubs or anything like that because of how fast the water was going. Okay, yes. Um, so it just kind of depends on what river um, you're going on and how fast it is and that, but we were able to make up time very quickly. Now, on this past hunt... This hunt was a 20-day hunt, and we hunted the northern part of Alaska, and that's off the Yukon River. And that one was a 180-mile hunt. So that was a 20-day float hunt. Oh, my God. <laughs> that one was the toughest hunt for sure. Uh, it was an extremely slow river. We had to do most of the rafting. And the funny thing is, most of the time, if we weren't rowing, we would it would honestly seem like we were just floating back up river. Okay. It was dead and that one was nice because you could be able to take your time um if you needed to you could hunt um um, off the river and be able to pull off and go check out areas extremely easy like if because when we're following a gps all the time because it could finger off and leave you to a dead end and then you have to transport your raft back so you have to empty everything out and get it back on the main river so that was always like a main concern um, on both these hunts, definitely on that faster river though. So on the slower one, you could stop, you could check things out. If there's maybe a pond over the little bank there, you can go check it out. So that one was really nice. But the thing is you had to raft, I mean, all day long. Right. So it was, it was tough to find, um, days that you could go hunting. Cause you're like, man, we have to follow these checkpoints and we have 180 miles to cover. It's tough. And we found this one spot that we were there for four or five days, and we saw moose there, and there was just none of them were legal. And a legal moose for a non-resident is 50 inches or wider or four points on one brow tine on either side. That's brutal. That's like... 
Yes, I mean that's a it's a big moose. I mean, you're talking about a good sized moose right there, and it's always tough to be able to check. You know, you don't you can't go up and freaking measure it. So 50 <laughs> inches or wider, you have to make sure that it is for sure 50 inches or wider, um, or you can get in serious trouble. So that was always a problem. But yeah, this one this one day at that stop, our buddy of ours, it was his day to hunt. And what I mean by that is before you even go out there, say you're going with the group, you flip a coin on whose day it is to hunt and then you switch off every day. And the reason you do that is so you're not fighting over, you know, who gets to shoot that day or, oh, that moose is mine or that moose is, you know. Smart. Yeah. So it just kind of simplifies things. So there's no drama later on in the hunt. So it was his day to shoot this moose. I mean, we were in camp midday just um, overlooking the river, doing some calling, and this moose just comes out of nowhere. And, I mean, these moose are so large that it looks like they're they're walking super slow, but they can cover so much ground with how long their legs are. So it comes across, um, swims across the river, and is heading up the bank, and he puts his um, his scope on it, his sights on it, and he just, he couldn't pull the trigger. He froze. He wasn't sure if it was the right size. I mean, we were already, we were plugging our ears like, yeah, heck yeah, we're about to get a moose. And he just, he froze. He wasn't sure if it was the right size or not. And, um, unfortunately we did, unfortunately we did not get that moose on that one. And it was, I think it was pretty big, but that's just, that's always a risk that you run. Um, while doing that and it was like it was like a 300 yard shot so it was tough and with moose as well their bodies are so big that um, it tends to make their rack look a little bit smaller than it actually is Mm -hmm. so after that we had to skip a few checkpoints um, and that actually the next stop is the stop that i was fortunately enough to get my moose okay (laughs) and that was like a dream come true so we rafted all day long and um, it wasn't actually a desired area at all. We were like, you know what? It's getting late. We need to start setting up camp before it gets dark. So we're just going to pull up and just set up camp. We start unloading all of our stuff, the tent, dry bags, all of our gear. Um, look for a location to set the tent first. We want to get a flat ground. Once we do that, we also want to look for an area to where we can do dinner, set up a fire, and then also hang our food up in a tree. And in some parts, it's it's tough finding a large enough tree or trees to be able to tie off to hold all of our food. So that's also a main thing. And being, being able to have it high enough um, off the ground so a bear cannot gain access to that meat. Right. Or, sorry, to that food. Right. So anyways, we set up all of our stuff. We're in camp. We're like, man, it was a rough day of rafting and we're sitting in camp overlooking the river, and we're just chit-chatting. At this time, we have our, our nets on, our bug nets, because, I mean, no and gnats and mosquitoes are all over the place. They're flying in our face, biting your hands, and it's rough. <laughs> I forgot to mention, the bugs are terrible in Alaska. I can so you agree with that. I've experienced you, that like nothing I've ever seen. Nothing yeah, you're going to want to take D or something. Um, so anyways, we're overlooking the river and this moose all of a sudden comes out and I'm like, guys, 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 there's a moose over there. There's a moose over there. And at that time we were not sure if it was 50 inches. And so we're just watching it walk the bank, walk the bank. And then it turns around 
And at this time, um, midway, we're now like midway through our hunt season. And this is when the rut kind of picks up. So, you know, you know how they get, they get stupid. (laughs) Animals get stupid when they get in the rut. And I think he, he noticed our camp. He was looking right at us. So he's like, Oh, I'll just go around you guys. So he starts, um, swimming through the river. Like it's nothing. I mean, this river is, I mean, it's deep and he just goes right across and he circles the camp and we hear him calling more, more, more. And that sound, I mean, it sounds like it's really distant, but if you can hear that sound, they are right on you. Okay. So we decide to, you know what, we're going to get a better look at it. We're going to go, we're going to go after him a little. The area that we're at, we're in trees. And then um, behind that is going to be a marshy area. And right now he was traveling in that area, tall grass, um, wet, it's swampy, swamp-like. So we're, I'm coming through, coming through and it's thick stuff. So inevitably we're breaking branches, we're snapping twigs, um, and we're trying to be as quiet as possible. And I come up and he's just, he's right there. It's about a 50, 60 yard shot, but I can't get a shot off yet until I get to that tree line. So, um, my dad and his buddy stay back and I'm like, I, I have to do this on my own cause we're making way too much noise. So I finally get up to the tree line to where I can finally get an okay shot off and I can see his body and everything fully. I lean up against the tree and he is, I mean, two more steps into going into these um, tall, tall um, shrubs and willows and getting, you know, just out of plain sight completely. And so I just post up real quick, lean against the tree and I pull the trigger and I mean, the adrenaline that you feel going through and through your body and being able to see this massive animal at 50, 60 yards away. You, I mean, I'm shooting a 300 Weatherby and I didn't feel the kick at all. <laughs> There's no kick and you just, it's the most amazing feeling, I have to say. It took one more step and it just dropped. And like I said at the trade show, like I... I always feel like it's cheesy when people raise their hands like to in celebration because they're so happy, but I couldn't help myself, but just raise both my hands and just feel um, so honored to be able to hunt this animal. And after such a long and drawn out hunt and going through all the conditions that we went through to be able to actually um, successfully get a moose down, it was as just watching it fall was the an amazing moment, honestly. Um, I can still just feel it as I talk about it now. It is, <laughs> it is one of the craziest moments you can experience. And then being able to go up to it and and just see it right there and just hold the rack in your hands and seeing how big these animals are. I mean, pictures and videos do not do justice to how um, how large these animals are being able to get it down and that rush. And then all of a sudden you realize that, man, I shot this animal at 9 PM and we're going to have a long night. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're so big. I mean, can you even guess like how many pounds of actual meat do you get off an Alaskan moose? Oh, I mean, we're talking a few hundred pounds. I mean, it's, they're massive. Their front car quarters are big, but then you get to their hind quarters and you're like, holy, <laughs> it takes two guys to carry it. I mean, it's, it's massive and they make an elk look puny. Right. 
it's honestly it's ridiculous how big they are once we got it down it was a big rush to you know get pictures of course with the trophy and i mean just (laughs) get that excitement out and be able to cherish the moment and then right after that we got straight to work and we didn't get back to camp everything done back to camp until 4 Mm a.m and during that time um, we set up these little trackers, LED lights to get us back to camp because we're in this marshy area. We're about 100 yards away from camp. And these tall, tall weeds and everything else are in the way. We're in a swampy area. So if there's bears in the area, we wouldn't be able to see it until they're right on top of us because this grass is over our heads. The cool thing was we were able to see the northern lights. So we were, you know, (laughs) quartering out this moose under the northern lights and packing out heavy meat or heavy pack frames, getting it back to camp. And it was it was honestly probably one of the coolest nights. And I'll never forget that being able to successfully harvest a moose and at the same time being able to see the northern lights. And it was amazing. Clear skies, stars and just the green northern lights and streaks of it. It was really cool. It was, yeah, one of the best nights of my life for sure. (laughs) Cool. Well, I think that like literally that's why I brought you on today. I mean, want to talk about game bags. I mean, got to, and then I wanted to hear some like craziness and it's, it's pretty wild that you guys are in Alaska, just you and your dad for so many days. Like, let's talk about that dynamic. And that's kind of where, I mean, I hunt with my dad a lot. I love my dad to death. He's my best friend, no doubt, but totally. I want to choke him out sometimes when we're hunting. You guys get along (laughs) the whole time. Yeah. It's, it's honest. It's pretty crazy. I mean, like any family, you definitely have your moments, especially, I mean, I, we see each other every day with work and, uh, going to trade shows and then Alaska, of course. And there's definitely moments when you don't get along, but at the same time, when you're in Alaska, man, there, there's, there's no time for you to be mad at each other. You guys have to be able to get along, um, all the time. And uh, that's another big factor is selecting your hunting partner. I mean, yes, having your hunting partner partner here in Colorado is going to be a little bit different than having your hunting partner in Alaska. The conditions are so much rougher. You're, it's remote. You have to make sure that you can eat. <laughs> I mean, freeze dried meals, and that can. I mean, that right there can drive someone crazy. Having to ration your food, and to top it off, you have the bugs. Um, you have the weather. The weather changes like crazy all the time. You're always dealing with rain. The past two times I went to Alaska, it was raining nonstop. Um, so gear is definitely a big factor. And just trying to stay dry because that can drive you crazy. So a hunting partner is definitely a big thing. And being able to select a level-headed person that can weather the conditions is always um, a key factor because that's going to make your hunt safe, successful, and enjoyable all at the same time. If you're having to deal with someone that's drama or that can't handle it, you're going to have to cater to them and things are going to be a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, hunting with my dad, um, since I was a little, little boy, man, he would take me to all these trade shows and go take me hunting and baseball. I mean, all of that, man. So 
Alaska, it's you definitely learn a person for sure. Oh, yes, <laughs> you're you're able to uh, see what ticks them off and what they can and can't handle, and you know just little thing that make little things that make them tick. And honestly, we get along really well out there. Uh, and I, I think it's a little bit different too, because you realize you're part of the food chain. So it's like, I need this person to survive and they need me to survive too, because if he gets injured, then, I mean, the whole dynamic changes for sure. For certain. <laughs> I mean, every, everything is freaking doubled and more than that. I mean, times 10, if you end up cutting yourself or anything, it's, it can be scary because it could take a day or two for anyone to get to you and, find you and it's, it's tough you know the stakes are For really sure. the stakes are high so do you think since you guys didn't draw are you guys going to go back this year over the counter or are you guys mm-hmm. just focused on elk this year what's 2019 shaping up to be so this year um looks like we're just gonna do some elk um deer uh possibly do some antelope or um maybe to go out of state um, haven't really decided that yet. We did put in for the draw for out of state stuff, but man, just work is so busy. And now that we moved into, uh, the new headquarters here, um, anyone listening from Colorado, <laughs> the Highlands Ranch area, we do have a store, a uh, little showroom area. So with that, I mean, we just recently moved in here and just getting things rolling and, um, getting seminars going here. We'll do self-guided hunting Alaska seminars, um, here out of our, our little our shop here and uh, rent out rafts and everything else. Just trying to get that rolling. It's it's tough. It's tough to go hunting when you're in the hunting industry. Funny to say, but <laughs> isn't that the truth? It really it's tough, man. It's tough to get out there when we're trying to cater to our customers and improve our company and um, supply them with uh, high quality products and keeping up with customer service and dealing with stores and everything else it's it's definitely a job that we do 24 7 there there are no days off for sure and even when we get out of here out of the office you're still working at home answering emails or doing some sort of marketing or um, just figuring out things to do or new things to do or um, new things to bring to the store and it's it's constant work, but we love it, and we can't get enough of that. But yeah, it's it's just tough to get out there, and when we can, we definitely cherish those moments. We videotape it, we're taking pictures the whole time, and we're definitely enjoying our time off. <laughs> Even though it's not our time off, we're still working from there, too. I mean, ultimately, it still is a work trip. You guys are gathering great content. You're probably proto- prototype testing, all that kind of stuff. And I'll have to talk to you about maybe bringing an elk-shaped camp to your retail setup. That would be awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to line out a few camps for 2020. I don't want to make it a full-time job, but I want to do a handful in 2020, and I want to leave Spokane because we're doing our second camp here in June. Uh, I had 40 spots available. I have just under 30 left, which I'm surprised. I really thought this one would sell out overnight, but it is a long ways to travel. It's not a cheap camp, but uh, we're going to do a couple of contests. I'll talk to you after line. Maybe we can do a giveaway with you guys, but I'm going to offer a couple of scholarships. I'm still working on how to do that. But I want to do one in Oregon next year. I think I'm going to do two in the Midwest. Colorado would be a good spot and uh, maybe do four or five in 2020. We'll have to talk about that. But if you guys are listening, camp's coming up. Get registered. Don't hesitate. I'm going to close registration into May. 
and it's a three-day camp. We got the Dirk Durham, the Bugler, going to teach you how to elk call. Ryan Lampers going over backcountry nutrition, and Josh Jones is doing archery coaching. Uh, Kenton is doing a train-to-hunt course. It's going to be epic, and then I'm teaching the fitness and nutrition. You're going to be sore. Your mind's going to be blown on how much you didn't know, and you're going to find that you're meeting some of the greatest people as far as the campers go. They're all like-minded, and I'm super stoked on that. Uh, Ted, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Where can people find you on the old social, or where can they go to your website and learn about all this kind of stuff? Yeah, so we have um, actually a lot of different things. On Facebook, we have just the Caribou Gear Facebook page and Hunting Gear Outfitter Facebook page. On Instagram, Caribou Gear, Hunting Gear Outfitters. Those are separate. You can find those. And then we also do have a new website for Caribou Gear um, game bags, and it's just caribougear.com. You can find out more details there. And or the huntinggearoutfitters.com is where we sell an array of different stuff from uh, Knives of Alaska to um, Raptor Razors, Mountain House Food. We sell NRS rafts, high side rafts, oars, frames, coolers, um, NRS dry bags. I mean, we're talking the whole thing. So you can get that online or um, locally here in Colorado um, in Highlands Ranch. So um, you can find us definitely an array of different places. So legit, yeah. man, that's cool. Uh, so before I let you go, as far as archery elk goes this year, and you guys are doing a public land over the counter tag because uh, yeah, we we get that from Walmart, man. Walmart tag, baby. <laughs> Uh, what, what do you guys look like as far as dates go for, for Colorado? I get a lot of guys asking me about, Hey, where should I over the counter hunt? I got, I mean like literally almost every day of the week, somebody's going to message me about where should I go? And I always tell them, Hey, your three best over the counter States are in this order, Colorado, Idaho, and then Montana's a draw for a general, but I still think it's a great state. Tell us a little bit about Colorado. Guy asked me yesterday. In fact, like want to hunt elk? I'm even willing to hire an outfitter. I want to do an over-the-counter area. Where do I go? Without giving away too much information, <laughs> you got any good general areas to go check out for this guy? I believe he lives in the Midwest. Definitely the flat tops area. We always go roughly around there. Um, it's Yeah, it's, that's tough to say without giving out any areas. But. Okay. <laughs> then don't um, I, I, mean, I, yeah, I think yeah, you yeah. gotta like the part of the learning curve is learning where the elk live and that's why Definitely. i tell people I mean, to go back to the same area and learn it if the, if it's a decent elk area just keep going back year after year and learn a little bit more but of course and the thing is i mean they're gonna be everywhere they really are um public or not you can even call Division of Wildlife, and seriously, they will tell you populations of certain areas, and you can do your research that way. Even going scouting, going scouting now and figuring it out, um, contacting people, uh, landowners, <laughs> calling out there and asking them information, and you would be surprised on how many people are actually willing to like give information out. But yeah, Division of Wildlife, just contact them, and they do all that research on population, and they'll give it to you that's what we do with alaska and you can do that anywhere and when you're doing your online research you can like literally like colorado's got a great interactive website to help plan your hunt a lot of these departments for each state 
put a pretty good chunk of money into their interactive mapping. They really do. And it's very like, you just have to do the work. And then, you know, Go Hunt, I'm not an affiliated with them. I'm a customer. I spend 150 bucks a year. I can really do some great things filtering and figure out some good over-the-counter stuff. It's not just for draws. You can use the filtering 2.0 to really hone in on where you want to go and get some good intel. And people also comment on that website in specific units, so you can get some good nuggets in there. Um, I think also Onyx Hunt, using that from a desktop and saving your waypoints and it syncs to your phone, it's a no-brainer because there's some public-private stuff in Colorado, no doubt. Oh, yeah. So actually, Hunting Gear Outfitters, we do sell Onyx stuff as well. So we sell subscriptions and the little SD cards. Um, and we love it here in Colorado because it will – I mean – put you to the feet of like private to land and just because there's a fence here i mean if you don't have that you could think it's private land but it's actually public and i mean there's a lot of areas like that here in colorado where there's a fence there and you're like oh can't go there because it's private but you look on your onyx maps and you're like no that's still public land so it, you're free to cross that's awesome um, but yeah we use onyx maps um, in Alaska and here. Definitely in Alaska, though, for sure, when you're talking about rivers and Indian tributaries and things like that. And for you older farts out there, you know who you are. The older you are, technology is not does not come as easy. Uh, and I'm kind of in between. Like, I'm 37, but, like, I, I'm pretty savvy. But anybody 20 years old or younger, they they can kill the internet. They know how to use everything. But downloading your maps ahead of time and and hunting off of your phone has saved me room in my pack. I don't bring a big, large GPS anymore. I don't deal with the micro SD cards. I download everything to my iPhone. I have one of those phones that's got so much memory. I got all the maps saved, and I bring like a little Poseidon charger, and I run my phone on airplane mode all day. And I am using my phone as a hunting tool, and I can go satellite imagery. I can do the topography, and you know all your waypoints are synced, so you can look at your points of interest. So I don't know. I just it's a no brainer. Took me a couple years to like completely switch, but the last couple seasons I don't pack a GPS. Um, is there anything gear wise that you're looking at getting this year that you don't quite have yet? Like for me personally, I'm gonna get a, a an inReach. I think I'm gonna go with the Mini. Do you guys sell those by chance? Uh, unfortunately we do not sell those. Um, yeah, honestly, man, (laughs) we're always acquiring gear, so it's not really, it never stops, right? It never stops. It never stops. But I think we're going to try the, um, the new flash, uh, jet boil. Oh, okay. Great, great things about that one. And then we are also bringing, um, a few, uh, jet boil models to hunting gear outfitters as well. And we're going to sell that out of the showroom too. Um, but hearing great things about the flash, um, seems pretty cool. It's a little bit bigger. We have the zip now and I think it's like a 0.8 liter, but the flash is like 0.1 and it boils quicker. And it act, it's pretty cool because they have a design that'll turn orange on the bottle when like the water's hot enough or something. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, it looks pretty cool. So we're going to try that one out. Um, take see my money, goes, but <laughs> no, but when we go to Alaska, we love, we use Jetboil. Um, we use the Zip now and works like a charm. Um, and that's how we, that's how I boil my water for oatmeal for breakfast. And that's how I boil my water for dinner for the mountain house stuff. And yeah. it works like a charm. 
no doubt. Well, dude, it's been good talking to you. I think uh, I think folks just probably takeaways from this: invest in quality game bags, synthetic. It's a it's a great investment. It's going to last you a long time. Life short. Get to Alaska. Do it yourself. Maybe go to one of your guys' seminars. You guys should Definitely. totally film that and put it on the internet. That would be really cool to watch from yeah. home. Um, yeah, and we'll be in touch about how we can work closer together on the camp, and we'll get a promo and put it in the show notes. And if the folks want to invest, now's the time. Appreciate your time, Ted Jr. Yeah, no worries, man. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Well, don't hang up. We'll chat offline. Guys, as always, thanks for listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. Thank you, sponsors. Hard work, discipline, delayed gratification, and being accountable to yourself. Have a good one, y'all. Hey, Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.